Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. Let's pray together. Gracious God, in your presence today as we turn our attention to your word, we long to see ourselves clearly as you see us. And as we do, God, we long to see Jesus clearly. So, God, we're praying today, would you speak to us? In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're asking the question, what is the limit of mercy? Presidential pardons can really help you to think about the limit of mercy Vice President Andrew Johnson became President of the United States when President Lincoln was assassinated. And when Johnson became President of the United States, well, this is Andrew Johnson. (laughs) That's still Andrew Johnson. I guess you don't get to see Andrew Johnson today. No great loss, because he pushed the limits of mercy. Andrew Johnson wanted so badly to reintegrate the states from the Civil War that he proposed pardoning in mass every Confederate foot soldier. Now, he did demand that wealthy and influential Southerners would, would do something more, and he made them apply in person for a presidential pardon. But then he granted presidential pardons over 13,000 times individually to wealthy, influential Southerners who had seceded from the Union. The United States Congress was concerned about this. They thought it didn't express the seriousness of the Civil War or the gravity of the crimes that had been committed against this country. And in fact, what President Johnson was doing was endangering the rights of freed slave and of all African Americans across the country. And so Congress acted. First, the United States House of Representatives impeached President Johnson, and then the United States Senate fell one vote short of convicting and removing him from office, which reminds us, Sometimes there are maybe limits to mercy. The prophet Micah in the Old Testament causes us to think about and ask about the limits of mercy. Micah was born in the town of Moresheth, which was 25 miles to the south and west of Jerusalem. Micah lived in Judah during the reign of three of Judah's kings. From roughly 750, he was active till sometime around 686 B.C. And in Micah's work, he proclaimed prophecies against the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital in Samaria and the southern kingdom, mostly of Judah, with its capital in Jerusalem. 
No, Micah confronted the people about their sin. He confronted them about the same sins that other prophets had confronted them. Micah railed against the idolatry and the godlessness of the people of God. But even more importantly, he was very direct in his words about the results of that idolatry and of that godlessness. He confronted the southern kingdom of Judah in particular for the way that powerful people were persecuting the poor. You see, deceit and injustice were rampant. And so Micah said, judgment is coming from God. You see, he could see judgment coming from the Assyrian Empire. Don't know how much you know your biblical history, but during the reign of the kings leading up to 750, the Assyrian Empire, which is the large behemoth in the Middle East at that time, had been greatly weakened. And so the kingdoms of Israel and Judah had flourished. They had grown. They had thrived. But now Assyria was back. Assyria was gobbling up territory throughout the area. And Micah could see that judgment would come from Assyria and later from beyond. And so what can we learn from the prophet Micah today about the limits of mercy? Because you see, the prophet Micah, like all the minor prophets, confronts sin. And he tells us that it's evil and it is destructive. Micah also confronts us with a message of judgment. And he says, sin has consequences. And already that begins to raise the question, what is the limit of mercy? If sin has consequence, does mercy have limits? But at the same time, the prophet Micah speaks about restoration. You see, there is a note of hope that comes in the book of Micah, a hope that grows throughout the pages of the minor prophets. And the hope that is growing also causes us to ask, what are the outer limits of God's grace? Because his mercy always exceeds our expectations. This is an important question for us to ask about ourselves because we, like the people of Israel in the ancient world, we sin. And because we sin, we too face judgment. And so we want to know what are the limits of mercy because as sinners ourselves, we need mercy. So what does Micah say? about mercy? Well, the question is not just what is the limit of mercy, but what is the limit of God's mercy? And this is the question that we find the prophet Micah addressing in Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, where the Lord God calls his people, Israel and Judah, the, the, the people of Israel, into a courtroom scene. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel." 
O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And so right here we have God engaging in a covenant lawsuit with his own people. You see, God had a covenant with the people of Israel, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. He agreed to be their God, and they had covenant obligations to him. They would be his people and would obey him. Now, earlier in the book of Micah and in other places, God brings specific indictments, charges against his people and makes a case that they have violated their covenant with him. But here in chapter 6, we see a summation argument, if you will. The Lord God stands in this courtroom as judge and prosecuting attorney, and he calls all of creation, the mountains and the foundations of the earth, to stand as witnesses to his case and as jurors in this case. And he asks, Who has seen sin like the sin of my people? But God is brokenhearted in this court case. He asks the question, Oh, my people, verse 3, what have I done to you? As you read it, you can sense the the broken-hearted nature of God right here. Oh, my people, how have I violated my covenant obligations to you? What have I done to you? And he says, I have kept every covenant obligation I've ever made to you. He says, when you were in slavery in Egypt, I rescued you from slavery. When you were wandering around in the wilderness, I provided you with leaders. When you faced enemies, threats like Balak, king of Moab, I provided deliverance. I brought you to the very edge of the promised land and then brought you into that promised land. I have kept every covenant obligation that I have ever made to you. And who then has sinned as my people have sinned against me? And because God has kept his covenant obligation and the people have not, then the verdict is clear. The verdict is guilty. The people have broken their covenant obligations with him. They are guilty of sin against him. And so judgment is pronounced in the book of Micah. The nation of Israel will be destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians will plague the people of Judah. And ultimately, another empire will carry them away into exile 
because they have violated their covenant with God. And, and this says something to us that we need to understand today, and that is that sin always has consequences. Micah reminds us that sin always has consequences. You see, we tend to think of sin as something private, something that, that matters only to us. But what we learn as we read the pages of the Bible is that when sin happens, we damage first and foremost ourselves. We destroy our very souls by our sin. But sin goes on to have additional consequences. When we sin, it damages our relationships with one another. But not only that, even worse, when we sin, sin becomes like a toxic, sticky substance that goes out from us and gets all over everything around us, polluting and damaging the world. And worst of all, when we sin, we break, we violate our relationship with God. So sin has consequences. And, and sin is not what God wants from us. Breaking our covenant is not what God wants from us. And if sin is not what God wants from us, then what does he want from us? Well, as it turns out, what God wants is he wants his people to love mercy. God wants his people to love mercy. And in verses 6 through 8 that continue, Micah asks this question, okay, what is it that, that God wants from us? He continues in verses 6 through 8 where we read, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And so Micah is asking the question, well, does God then want some type of elaborate display of worship from us? Because you have to understand that while the people of God in Israel and Judah were violating the demands of the covenant while they were sinning against him, while they were engaging in idolatry and, and godlessness, at the same time, they were still showing up at the places of worship and worshiping God. And, and they were doing so because they hoped that by worshiping the Lord, it would somehow cover over the stench of their sin and would lead God to grant them blessings and protection. And so Micah is asking the question on behalf of the people. The people really are the ones asking the question. Okay, so if we have violated God's covenant, then what are we to do? What shall we do? Shall we worship him? Shall we come before him and worship him in the normal kinds of ways as we have always done? Well, the answer to that is clearly no. You're just worshiping God does not cover over the stench of our sin, and earn God's mercy and favor. 
And so they, they respond that, okay, if that's not going to work, well, what if we dial it up a bit? What if we come before him, not with just one animal, but as a king would, with thousands of animals? Will that gain his favor? Will that cover over the stench of our sin? What if we bring him 10,000 rivers of oil, ridiculous amounts of offering? Will that cover over the stench of our sin and earn his mercy and favor? No. What if we give our firstborn child, we'll sacrifice him on the altar? Is that what God wants from us? Will that earn his favor? Will that cover over the stench of our sin? The answer in each case is no. Obviously, no. When we sin, we can't cover over the stench of our own sin ourselves. We can't earn God's favor by worshiping him, by using holy words, by doing elaborate things to gain his favor and his attention. What does he really want from us instead? Well, he answers that in probably the most famous book, verse from this book. It's Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where the prophet tells us what God wants from us. The prophet writes, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, what does he mean when he says do justice, for instance? To do justice means that we love our neighbors and treat them as we ourselves would long to be treated. He says, first, do justice. The third thing he says is to walk humbly with God, which means to walk without pride, without arrogance. But beyond being absent of pride and arrogance, we accept that God is in charge, that he is right. Because God is in charge and because God is right, we do what he tells us to do. We obey him, and that is to walk actually with wisdom before our God. We do justice and we walk wisely with God. This one thing he puts in the middle is probably the most important and the toughest to understand because it says here that we are to love God kindness. Other translations, particularly the older translations, say, and to love mercy. And both kindness and mercy begin to translate the word that appears here in Hebrew. It is the word hesed. Hebrew reads from right to left. This is hesed, hesed. This is an important Hebrew word, so I'd love for you to be able to say it I'm going to say it, then you say it. I'll say it. It's chesed. You say it. Chesed. Yeah, you see, you got you to bear down on that H. Let's do it again. Chesed. chesed. Be careful when you do that, okay? Chesed. It is steadfast love and covenant faithfulness. And God loves his people with chesed, with steadfast love and covenant faithfulness, meaning that God has a covenant with his people. He's faithful to it. He is steadfastly loving toward them. So when you have chesed towards someone, you, you desire to bless them. So God has blessed his people. 
And when you have chesed, covenant faithfulness and steadfast love towards someone, you tend to overlook their faults, their flaws, and their sins. And so God, in his chesed, is merciful to his people. This is what God does toward his people. He is full of chesed, steadfast love, covenant faithfulness, the giver of good things, and the one who extends mercy and is patient with their sin. And this is what God wants from his people. He wants chesed, for them to love him steadfastly, to be faithful to the demands of the covenant, to serve him, and to be sticking with him constantly and always. God wants chesed from his people. But chesed is exactly what his people denied him. This leads us to understand that that chesed is still actually what God wants from us. What does it mean then for us to give chesed to God? It means that, that we have a covenant relationship with God of our own, that we are faithful to that relationship, that we are faithful to him and steadfast in our love for him. We obey him, we serve him, and we stick with him when everything is good and easy and when everything is difficult. God, it seems, wants chesed from us. So it leaves us with a question, and that is, how are we doing at giving chesed to God? Because the truth of the matter is that we are sinful and we violate chesed, steadfast love, covenant faithfulness with God. And so where are you violating God's desire for hesed from you. And what do we do about it? The amazing thing is that we discover that mercy is God's nature. As we come to the end of the prophet Micah, we find him extending a ray of hope In Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, we read, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in chesed, in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You, this is speaking to God, will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You, this is again speaking to God, will show faithfulness to Jacob and chesed, steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And we begin to discover here exactly what mercy looks like And it comes down to the way that Micah uses the word tread. Back in Micah chapter 1, verse 3, we heard God treading. In Micah 1, verse 3, we read, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. God is going to trample down high places. And there are two high places that he has in mind to start with. 
the high place of Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom, he's going to trample to the ground, and Jerusalem, the high place at the center of the kingdom of Judah. God is coming to tread these high places of the earth in judgment. But after judgment, Micah says, there is a promise of restoration. God who has tread upon the high places of the earth, starting with Samaria and Jerusalem, is after judgment restoring his people by treading instead upon our sin. In Micah chapter 7, verse 19, we read that God in the future will tread our iniquities underfoot. God who tread the world in judgment will then tread our sin. He will trample it down. It says he will cast it out into the sea. What is he going to do? The word in Hebrew is kabosh. God is going to put the kabosh on our sin. That's a good thing, right? God will kabosh our sin. These minor prophets are beginning to understand that this is the very nature and essence of God. If you turn the pages back just a couple of pages to the prophet Jonah, you'll find that Jonah knew this about God, and it scared him. You see, God called the prophet Jonah to go from Israel to the Assyrian Empire, to its capital, to the center of this evil empire, to Nineveh, and to proclaim judgment to them. Well, Jonah was a bit reluctant. He ran the other way before eventually God ended up with him heading to Nineveh. Jonah never wanted to go to Nineveh. He never wanted to proclaim judgment on Assyria. And so when he got to Nineveh, to the capital of the Assyrian Empire, he preached the world's shortest sermon, turn and burn, baby. He walked out of the city and watched as God would judge Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. But the Assyrians, the people of Nineveh, repented. And because they repented, God relented. And sitting outside the city gates, Jonah saw, he knew what was happening. They repented. And you're not going to burn them to the ground. The enemy of my people, you have your chance, and you could burn them to the ground. But you're not, are you? Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, he cried out, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee as far away as I could. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in chesed and relenting from disaster. I knew you'd do this. I knew you'd do this because that's who you are. And Jonah was right. Mercy, steadfast love, is God's very nature. You see, God was merciful to a pagan land in the book of Jonah. And you turn the page to the book of Micah, God is merciful once again this time to his people, because that's who he is. And Micah says, 
just as you always have been. You are God. You are the Lord, compassionate, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and chesed, just as you promised to our forefathers. It's the faithfulness you've promised to Jacob. It's the chesed you promised to Abraham. You stand by your plan because that is who you are. Now that calls upon us to praise God because of his mercy. This mercy that was available to a pagan land to God's people is now available to us. You see, as we read the book of Micah, we are reading about things that God said to Israel and Judah. We're reading about promises that God made to Jacob and Abraham. And and we have to understand that most of us are not biologically descended from Israel, Judah, Jacob, or Abraham. And so how do these promises have anything to do with us, but they do. God's mercy is promised to extend to us in the book of Micah. You see, Micah proclaims that one is coming, a Messiah, a Savior, a Deliverer. We read about it in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where we read, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so Micah is saying, as God judges the people, he is judging the nation, he's judging even the kings, at some point there will be a king, a new king, He comes from Bethlehem, just as our good king, as King David did. And he will be the perfect king, the perfect King David. He's pointing forward to Jesus. And he says, Jesus is going to come, and he is going to rule Israel and over God's people. He goes on in verse 4 to say that this king for Israel is going to matter to us. He says, and he, that is now Jesus that he's pointing forward to, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great, look at this, to the ends of the earth. And what Micah says in verse 4 here is part of a set of prophecies in the book of Micah that make it very clear together that Jesus is going to make mercy available to us, and that Jesus is going to make it possible that we can live in the kingdom of God now. And Jesus is going to rule over the kingdom of God at the end and forever. And so we see God's mercy, his chesed, his covenant love, his steadfast covenant love coming to us. And so that leaves us with a task, and that is to accept God's mercy. You see, the simple and undeniable fact is that we all stand in a kind of courtroom. There are courtroom scenes throughout the Bible, and It's uncomfortable to think about, but in many of them, God is seated on a throne and is judge. And we stand before God for judgment. We stand before the Lord. 
Jonathan Edwards helps us to visualize a bit. He, he talks about what it's like to stand before God for judgment. Sinners in the hands of an angry God is a sermon that Edwards wrote in the 1700s. He preached it nearby, and that sermon probably launched the first great awakening. And the things that he says about us in that sermon are sometimes uncomfortable. To help us to understand what it is like to stand in the position of being before God awaiting judgment. He says, it, it's like what happens with you if you were to hold a spider dangling from a, a thread over a fire. And so Edwards is asking us to think, if you have ever wanted to squash a spider, then you understand the position that we stand in before God for judgment. Now, he's not saying in that sermon that we are disgusting to God. He's He's, he understands that we are created by God in his image and loved desperately by God. What he's helping us to understand is that we stand in, in judgment, and judgment is being passed on us. And now we can recoil at, at the evocative nature of some of Jonathan Edwards' words and pictures, but in a way, he's not so far from right. Because we are sinners standing before God for judgment. We have sinned and broken our covenant with God. We are guilty. And because we are guilty, there is a clear punishment, which is eternal death. Micah makes that clear. The New Testament makes that clear. And there is nothing that we can do to force God to overturn that verdict or take ourselves out of God's hands for judgment. And the penalty is death eternally. If if that is what God wanted for us. But what we discover in the prophet Micah is that God extends mercy to us. God is extending to us his steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness, his chesed. You see, Jesus is the one who makes God's mercy available to us. Jesus is the one who set aside heaven and came to earth, took on human flesh, and became fully God and fully human. Jesus is the one who lived a perfect and sinless life. And when Jesus went to the cross, God the Father took the sin that rightly is on our shoulders, off of our shoulders, and placed that sin onto Jesus. And on Jesus declared that sin guilty and poured out the full weight of divine wrath on that sin on Jesus. And Jesus died to pay the price for that sin. And then he rose from the dead three days later, victorious 
over sin and evil and death. And now we can be forgiven. Now we can have God's mercy. Now God's steadfast love, covenant faithfulness, his chesed is available to us. So I call on you today, accept God's mercy. At the beginning, I asked the question, is there a limit to mercy? Is there a limit to God's mercy? And in the prophet Micah, we discover that sin has consequences. And that certainly seems to say that if sin has consequences, there are some limits to mercy. And if we say no to God and resist his offer of mercy for our entire lifetime, we will stand before God for judgment and be condemned to eternal conscious punishment and separation from him in hell. That seems to indicate that there is some kind of limit to mercy. But that's where the limits of mercy end. Because you see, when it comes to forgiving us of our sin, there is no limit to God's mercy. No matter what you have done, God will forgive you. No matter how you've pushed back against God in the past, God will forgive you. No matter how many times you've said no to God, God will forgive you. There is no limit to the sin that God will forgive if you will ask him. Forgiveness is available. Christ's death is sufficient to pay the price for your sin and mine. Mercy is available to us. I implore you, accept God's mercy in Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.